Hey everyone, welcome to Unrefined Women. I am your co-host Agnes. And I'm your other co-host Margaret. This podcast is an ongoing dialogue between two sisters on the topics of spirituality, religious trauma, mental health, family dynamics, and feminism. We're very grateful you could join us today. In this episode, we decided to have our cousin Jessica on, and we had Jessica on our podcast all the way back last year in November. I think it was episode number nine, where we talked all about microdosing mushrooms, Um, and we loved that episode so much, so we decided to have her back on because in the past... Margaret and I had conversations with her about this whole situation with Roe v. Wade being overturned and just abortion in general. And we, all of us, grew up in Catholic households and with a lot of strict beliefs around abortion and us, you know, coming into the world as women where we have to fight for these rights, we really clicked on this topic. And Jessica has been reading a lot of really interesting books that she also cites in this podcast episode that has taught her and changed a lot of her beliefs around the whole concept of abortion and women's rights in general. And then also Jessica, she lives about 20 minutes away from me here in Arizona. So she just drove drove over to my house. um, And then we just shared a microphone like late in bed. It was really fun to like record with her. I kept laughing during the episode because like there's parts of the episode where you two are like totally giggling and (laughs) just like I was going to say the giggling totally matched what I could see on my camera here. Like both of you two just like laying in bed, sharing a microphone, hanging out, having a great time. But even though there's some laughing and there's some good parts of this episode, it is a very heavy topic. So trigger warning, we talk about infanticide, suicide, and obviously abortion. So there's some very heavy, heavy history that we get into around infanticide, um, around violence, around uh, abortion, around suicide, and we talk a little bit about assisted suicide as well. So please proceed with caution as you listen to this episode and take breaks as needed. What was that? I said I feel honored that my opinion is so valued. <laughs> I get main stage. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for coming on because no, I know... It really is an interesting topic. I'm excited. Well, you were reading that book when I was out there visiting, so I wanted you yeah. to talk about the stuff you were reading because it sounded so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, That uh, book, it's called The Nature of Our Angels, um, and I can get an author for you guys as well. I'll get you a link to it. Um, Cool story, actually. Agnes's little library book trick got me to be able to get that book for free. So I got screenshots on my phone that I get a reference. Super helpful. Oh, little nice. shout out. Oh, wait. Ag- yeah. Wait, okay. What's what's the name of the app again? Because Agnes was like telling me okay. you have to get this app. I'm going to get everybody on this crack. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys knew this, but we all hate paying taxes. But little do we know that our taxes go towards something called the library. <laughs> Yeah, and growing up, my Something, mom used to one good take, thing. Yeah, like growing up, we didn't have a TV in the house, so we were like deprived of like entertainment. So, so my mom would just take us to the library, so we just like read books and listened to audiobooks like crack. So I like grew up on that, and then for the longest time, like I stopped going and just I didn't even it didn't come back into my life until like a month ago. 
and I saw on TikTok there's so there's two apps there's one called Hoopla and one called Libby and if you go to your local library you can get a free library card a library card for free you literally get access to everything you get access to a computer internet any book magazines audiobooks fucking movies everything music you get everything for free and on these apps you just have to have a library card and you hook your library card up to it and you get all that on your phone you don't even have to go to the library (laughs) so i canceled my audio my audible membership because i'm like why am i paying a monthly subscription for this when i can literally get this shit for free so everybody go hook yourself up yeah cancel audible stop supporting jeff bezos exactly no for real it it, it's been awesome i'm the type that like i love i love reading and i've just now gone into audiobooks because of this and so i do like um fiction novels on my audiobooks while i'm driving because they're super just interesting and then i still get to like read my super like educational philosophy books um in my free time but it's a great resource i do highly recommend as well because it's new books like we're talking 2022 titles people like top charting uh new york time bestsellers not like 1980 westerns like they got everything that's my, that's I our love little how spiel. we just started off i know I've, i love how we just started off our episode by doing like a free sponsorship free uh <laughs> promotion for the library <laughs> right no it's honestly so fitting isn't it <laughs> Uh, this this book though is on there so if you want to access this book it's free on your library app or you can purchase it for 27 dollars at barnes and noble i know that because i kind of freaked out when i saw the price but way worth it um this okay so jessica why don't you share yeah share the name of the book that you have been reading and that you told me and agnes about a few weeks ago when i was in phoenix and i was super excited to talk about it yeah, absolutely. So it's called, uh, it's by the author Steven Pinker, who's one of my favorites, and it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Um, and essentially, I wrote this book to illustrate throughout history um, where we've come from and the different violences that took place in different centuries. Um, and he gives a lot of measurements, a lot of charts, and a lot of great information into how those things are measured. Like, what exactly is violence? How do you Um, quantify that into a way that it's measurable uh, throughout a period of time. Um, And in a lot of cases, it can be difficult, especially when talking about war, um, because war has much longer effects on societies in terms of violence. Um, Think like famine, think lack of resources, um, think fatherless families, right? All those things increase violence, right? Because now we have kids growing up in families or in war-torn areas or without resources, um, and growing up in those areas increases violence. So all those things are included in the calculations of these measures. Um, and the one really interesting fact that stood out to me about this book that I was discussing with Margaret that uh, really got us thinking was throughout all of history, violence has declined, except for one area. And if you ask people, think like you know, children violence, animal violence, uh, war, famine, out of all the violence that happens in the world, What's the one type of violence that's increased by millions throughout history? Increased abortion or infanticide, whatever you prefer to refer to it as, but the killing of babies. And that's fascinating to me for some reason, because it's it's, it's atrocious, right? In the sense that like it's an innocent being that the violence is being done unto, right? Not an animal, but our own species, not a woman, but a child, right? And it's increased. But do you consider abortion violence? 
And that was the question that the book can't answer for you. That is a question that every individual kind of has to answer for themselves in today's age. Damn, I had no idea. That's some new information to me. Because when you were saying like, what's what's a what's violence that has gone up? And I think just because the shooting that happened here in Texas was like, it's still so fresh. For some reason, I was like, oh, gun violence. Because there's like mm. been what? It, we're, we're what? June? And there's been like 267 mass shootings in America just this year alone. But yeah. like, obviously, gun violence has been going on forever. But I had no idea about infant side and abortions like that going like us being at a point in history where that is happening more than ever. That's shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so I was, I was going to read an extra excerpt, excuse me, from this book that (laughs) I think very well illustrates, um, and paints a good picture as to why that is and gives a little bit of an emotional foundation into exploring that idea of infant side or abortion being violent. Um, so if you guys are okay with me sharing that with you, I'll go ahead and share it. Cool. It says, uh, though infanticide is the most extreme form of maltreatment of children, our cultural heritage tells of many others, including the sacrifice of children to gods, the sale of children into slavery, marriage, and religious servitude, the exploitation of children to clean chimneys and crawl through tunnels and coal mines, and the subjection of children to forms of corporal punishment that verge on or cross over into torture. We have come a long way to arrive at an age in which one-pound preemies are rescued with heroic surgery. Children are not expected to be economically productive until their fourth decade, and violence against children has been defined down to dodgeball. How can we make sense of something that runs as contrary to the continuation of a life as killing a newborn? In the concluding chapter of Hardness of Heart, Hardness of Life, his magisterial survey of infant side around the world, the physician Larry Milner makes a confession. And I quote, I begin this book with one purpose in mind, to understand, as stated in the introduction, how someone can take their own child and strangle it to death. When I first raised the question many years ago, I thought the issue to be suggestive of some unique pathological alterations of nature's way. It did not seem rational that evolution would maintain an inherited tendency to kill one's offspring when survival was already in such a delicate balance. Darwinian natural selection of genetic material meant that only the survival of the fittest was guaranteed. A tendency toward infanticide must certainly be a sign of unfit behavior that would not pass this reasonable standard. But the answer which has emerged from my research indicates that one of the most natural things a human being can do is voluntarily kill its own offspring when faced with the variety of stressful situations. End quote. Wow. Yeah, that, that really... I, I just I was remember reading that and it, it gave me a very still and somber feeling because when you paint that picture in your head of a mother making that choice and I remember reading this book it gave an example of think about growing up um, in a lower class right where your husband's a farmer and you're making pennies a day struggling to feed your child so much so that let's say you have a kid that's still breastfeeding right mm-hmm if you're breastfeeding a child and you're in a place of war and your husband is off fighting a war and you have no way to provide for your child except for breastfeeding them most time till the age to five to seven in these uh, very like worn torn uh, historical time periods and you're pregnant right if you have this baby you are essentially killing your older child because you cannot breastfeed both of these children right so you're now having to pick based on survival which one's most likely to make it out? Well, the older one, because it's more 
more developed, right? It's an older child and it's already breastfeeding. So it actually is the humane thing to do for all of humanity to kill that newborn in order to keep your oldest child alive. And there's millions of different situations that you could put that into context of. Um, but to me, I think it really showed the resilience of women throughout history and just having to endure that. So back, so talking about like when you just gave the example of like you have a woman who's breastfeeding and she can only breastfeed one child back in these like, I guess, historical times where did they have like herbs and ways that they could like naturally or, or try to naturally abort the child when it was still in utero or would, or is it more common to actually carry the child all the way or the fetus all the way to full term, deliver the child and then, and then kill it? Yeah, um, I think statistically, the, the book gave numbers on this, and I urge everyone to go read it themselves, um, but a very large percentage, um, and I don't remember the percentage off my head, so I don't want to say it, of children rarely even made it to childbirth. It wasn't a matter of them having to wow. try to abort it, but the mother didn't have enough nutrients anyway in her body to keep a fetus alive, right, while also uh, breastfeeding another child and trying to maintain her own nutrients. Um, but yes, absolutely, there was, um, through closer time periods, like um, th throughout the 1800s even, different teas and different remedies um, for abortion were made. Um, and it's still kind of questionable whether they worked exactly um, or how they worked. Mm. Um, but a lot of times it was just poison that made women so, so sick that their body rejected the fetus at some point. Yeah, well, it also sounds like if there was already issues with famine and war and, and people were already malnourished, I could imagine it would have been difficult to be able to know, like, was the um, pregnancy even viable? Was the pregnancy even going to make it in the first place? Or was that poison that I ingested what killed the, the fetus? You know, there was probably yeah. no way to actually measure, like, what, like, how, um, like, how well those forms of abortions actually worked because maybe it was, it sounds like it was really common to miscarry. Yeah, absolutely. And honestly today, one in four women miscarry. So it's not that something, it's not something that's uncommon ever throughout history, but then right. to add on to the effect that these people were like in environments that didn't have the commodities that we have today to survive. Um, the average lifespan of women up until the modern century, um, the, the most modern century was 35 years of age. Think about that. Mm, I That's believe crazy. it. <laughs> That's crazy. Like you're not even, you can't even raise your kids most of the time to the age of 18. Yeah. Um, I, th I think in applying this to the current day situation of facing abortion, I think it's an interesting premise that we sit on in women who choose to abort due to lack of financial resources or their current living environment, right? Whether it be a toxic relationship, um, unstable housing, lack of resources, food, money, or job. Um, a lot of times our society casts judgment on them as using abortion as some type of birth control. And that just simply isn't the case. Um, throughout all of history, as we've seen now um, in this, women have been making this decision based off their environment, right? And based off the better need of themselves and their families and their communities. Um, it's a, it's a awfully hard decision, you know? And that's why I think with something like abortion comes the resilience of women. And that's why the illegalization and criminalization of it is a war against women. It's, it's not a choice that we make to take these kids out of the world. It's not us trying to play God. It's simply us trying to survive and do what's best. Mm. 
I think actually, like, I don't think I mentioned this in our Roe v. Wade part one episode that we did last week, but I was talking with our editor, Sean. Hey, Sean, you're getting a shout out now. <laughs> I was talking <laughs> to our editor, Sean, about this because he's always like super interested whenever we talk about like stuff going on out in the world and, and kind of like hot political topics. And um, but he was like, if you want to like throw on there what my opinion is like is abortion murder like yeah i think it is murder but guess what like for the entire like the entire time that our species has lived on the planet murder is what's kept us alive so deal with it yeah no so i thought that was kind of interesting yeah because i'm like damn like that's that's sort of like because there's that there's constantly between like the religious people and then the atheist people there's constantly this argument of is abortion murder and I, th- I think that he was like the first person that was like, yeah, it's murder, but like, so what, you know? So I have a counter question for Sean. <laughs> he's not here to answer it, but he's going to hear when he edits. I know. I know. He can think about it. Is, uh, is artificial insemination murder? Hmm. Because the way that they art- they use artificial insemination is um, if, you know, a couple wants to go get artificially inseminated, they go through the process of getting cleared to do so. They extract multiple eggs from the women and multiple semen samples from mm-hmm. the man, and they fertilize multiple samples, anywhere from 5 to 15 fertile ones. They freeze all of them. And then when they inseminate the woman, they inseminate her with up to three fertile eggs. And that is why uh, twins or even triplets is very common in artificial insemination um, or whatever else they want to call it. But um, afterwards, they give the couple the option of either... Um, donating their other fertilized eggs to couples who also want to have children, or if they don't want their DNA in other people, they can choose to throw them away. And so for every one child that is artificially inseminated, five to ten other fetuses are thrown in the trash. Is that murder? I think that's an interesting question because I know that there's, I know of religious people who are pro-life who have done the artificial, or that's like the... um, uh, what's it called? Like the I, IVA, IVA? What am I? IV- IVF. IVF, yeah. <laughs> IVF. But I know I know of people that are religious and who are conservative and who are pro-life that have done IVF before. And to me, it's kind of like, do they not know like the amount of what they believe lives are getting thrown in the trash with them doing IVF? That's like a really interesting question. Yeah. They, I yeah. mean, they do know because they, they, sign, they sign a document consenting to them being thrown mm-hmm. away. So and and that's just what I find so interesting is that this isn't a matter of being pro-life because if you're pro-life, you wouldn't go through that process to put a life in you. You would believe, especially if you're pro-life due to religious circumstances, that it's essentially in the hands of God, right? And if you're not able to conceive, you simply can't have mm-hmm. children. And I think it's almost selfish that we live in such a rich world that if you have enough money, you can walk into a, a <laughs> a baby factory basically yeah. and pay to conceive a child when you weren't given the natural ability to. Yeah. It, it's, it's in a lot of ways, in a way when we see people like the Kardashians using surrogates because they don't want to mess up their bodies. Right. Think of like the moral objection of essentially buying another woman's womb for a financial gain because you don't want to ruin your physical mm-hmm. body to have a child. Yeah. 
it's a very interesting uh, thought process. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew this, Jessica, but I actually have, I was, I've actually have been an egg donor in the past. This was years ago. I think that with the information I have now, um, I wouldn't have done it, but like I, I've done it. So it is what it is. <laughs> um, but that was something that I, I remember, you know, like there were so many, there were, the whole process was really, really lengthy. And I think I did the egg donation three times, if I remember, um, to three different families. And there was just so much legal paperwork involved. You know, there was, I had to go through a lot of different like psych evaluations and, and different physical evaluations. And then there was like attorneys involved and it was, it was very complex, but, um, I do vaguely remember that with uh, all the the stuff that I had to sign, you know, I'm, I was basically consenting to all of these eggs are going to be extracted out of my body. And this was after I went through essentially like a round of kind of like IVF, you know, where they pump my body full of all the, yep. all the, yeah. all the hormones and everything. And I, I think I produced like 50 eggs or something ridiculous each time I did it, you know, yeah. and I'm signing away these eggs to go to a family and they're going to use some of them. And there's probably children out there now that have my DNA and the rest get either frozen for the future babies or thrown in, you know, and the rest go in the trash. So, yeah. And yeah. I, I do remember that crossing my mind, like, damn, like people are spending this much money, you know, cause I got paid a lot of money to do that. And the fees they paid me to do that, I knew were just a small percentage of the fees they were paying for the entire process. And it was like, I do remember that thought crossing my mind, like, damn, I can't believe people are spending this amount of money and going through all of this headache and heartache when there's living and breathing children out there in foster care right now that need someone right now. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I do remember you sharing that with me that you did, um, egg donations and yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you just said. It's a tedious process and an interesting one at that, but I think it definitely throws a curveball in this whole Roe versus Wade situation. Cause the first thing that me were like, you know, we had this one side saying like, no, like life is conceived, you know, or life starts when you conceive it. Right. Which to be honest, I believe scientifically, right. Just in my own personal beliefs. However, I don't think that negates the right to abort the child and that's where they disagree. And that's where I find their logic to be a little bit flawed is like, you know, the number one, the number one, uh, customer for IVF treatments is white Christian mm -hmm. women. Yeah, it is. 80% of the women that get IVF are white Christian women. So if those are the people that are getting IVF, a lot more fertile eggs die from IVF than they do abortion clinics. Yeah. And I wonder how much of this, like this pressure to go through IVF to, to get pregnant is these pressures that women in religion go through. You're expected to produce all of these children who are then going to be raised within the religion as well. So I just wonder how much of that like religious and cultural pressure is put on these women to do basically more harm because they want to have babies. Yeah. Yeah. If we want to talk about the extreme end of religious pressures put on women to conceive, um, everyone should go watch the Be Sweet and Obey on Netflix, uh, which we were discussing <laughs> earlier in text. It's a uh, Netflix docu-series that goes in-depth of the fundamentalist uh, Latter-day Saint church out of Utah and later on Texas and the atrocities that happen to the women and children within their religion. 
Um, but it puts a, it puts a very extreme viewpoint um, compared to like modern Christianity, yeah. at least um, of these types of pressures. But it's not to say that they don't exist because all of us coming from Catholic households, um, especially your guys's family, I think can see those pressures um, outplay in your own personal lives. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I even not being religious anymore, I do still get asked a lot if I'm going to have more children. And Jessica, you and I have kind of talked about this too. At this point in my life, I sometimes I feel a little bit shocked that people like have the audacity, right, to ask such a personal question. Because when you think about Mm. that, like asking a woman, like, are you going to have more children or are you going to have children if she doesn't already? I mean, that's a very, very personal. And I kind of feel like a very invasive question to ask someone, unless it's maybe someone that's like very, very, you're really close to. And at the same time, I've been guilty of asking the same question to people that I don't know very well. Um, I think it's such a like, it's such yeah. a, it's a question that really is become so normal to ask in our society. But when I really think about it, like, I think that there's a problem that it is normal to ask people such personal things unless you're close with them. And so there still is that societal pressure yeah, I, to have children that's still considered the norm. No, absolutely. Um, I think it's like, it's like asking someone like, when are you going to get a job? Yeah. Like, right. Like, it's just like, what, what? Um, for me though, it's like, for me, it almost feels as if they're uh, making me as little as my ability to have a child, right? It's it's like they completely negate my education. They completely negate what I want for myself. They completely negate my career and my community and my ability to have amazing in-depth conversation. And they say, oh, when are you having kids? What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> right? Um, and yeah, I, I think... I think the part that angers me is they put so much romanticism into that question of when you having kids, right? And to all women, they romanticize the ability to have kids, right? Like you get the husband, you get the marriage, you have the baby. And like, when are you going to have him? What gender is he going to be? What are you going to name him? You have the baby shower, you have the gender reveal, you have the outfits. And the minute the baby is born, it turns into, well, you're not doing this right. Well, you're not feeding him right. Well, he shouldn't be eating that. Well, why would you let him watch TV? And now we're crucifying them for the decisions that they're making with the children we beg them mm-hmm. to have. Damn, that's so true. Like, I can speak firsthand as a mother. Like, you're not, there's always someone telling you you're doing something wrong. And, and something that I've kind of noticed the whole time that I've been a mother, and I feel like people told me this and I kind of didn't like listen, but now that I have a child, like, this is so, so true. Like once you become a mother, you suddenly you love this little human like more than you possibly could have ever loved someone like I I mean, I think that's true. Like Mm. I I didn't know the amount of love that I was going to love my child. But at the same time, I live with a fear that I never knew before. I live in constant fear and I live in constant guilt all the time and it is so so hard to balance that the trying to lean into the present moment trying to lean into the love I have for this child and lean into the beautiful moments trying to balance that with the constant fear and like especially again I know I'm going back to this again but that school shooting that just happened in Texas like that really scared me like really really scared me um 
also just the fact that when I first heard about the shooting, like it was like a headline, like they didn't have any information and all it said was like school shooting in Texas. And like, I live in Texas and my son was in school at the time Mm -hmm. it happened. So I'm like freaking out Mm -hmm. like a mother's worst fear, you know, like didn't know if it was my son's school. And like, so it's just constantly like walking that line of like trying to keep those, the constant fears in check. And then on top of that, the constant guilt of like all the things that I'm doing wrong. And like, we, like we never, none of us, like no matter how healthy we are or how healthy our families and communities are, like none of us get out of this life without being traumatized. And so I know as a mother that there are ways that I have traumatized and, or, or I am traumatizing my child, like that I couldn't know, like I'm doing the best that I can, but it's inevitable. And so there's just that constant guilt that I live with and it's so hard. Yeah. And, and that's what just puts fire in my soul is the way that as a society, we treat mothers and we treat motherhood because Mm -hmm. it is, it's one of the most difficult unpaid positions in this world, right. To raise another human being and knowing, and we see this in our own parents, like we have so much grace for them and they did the best that they could given the circumstances that they were given from their own traumas and their own parents and now we're having to end those cycles, yeah. right? And as you said, some of those are going to spill over into our, you know, our next generation, and they're going to have to negate those traumas as well. Um, and they have those obligations to themselves. But how as a society, we support mm-hmm. moms and the resources that we fail to provide them to make sure that they're able to do a good job, that they're able to take a second to maintain their individuality as an individual as Margaret Chioni, right? Not Braden's mom, not, you know, taxi to school, not chef in the kitchen, not nanny, not diaper changer, not sick, you know, watcher over. But Margaret is so gross. Like they deserve so much more. And I think mothers are who we're failing as a society the most to sit there and paint motherhood as this God-given gift that every woman has an, an inherent right and almost like expectation to, mm-hmm. and then for them to do it and commit to it, and we ostracize them and we judge them and we crucify them and we tell them they're not doing a good enough job. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we all know this because we all have read the book Untamed by Glennon Doyle, but I think it's so important where Glennon Doyle talks about it's expected in our society for women or mothers specifically, well, women too, to be selfless. But when we really think about what that means to be selfless, to have no self, like who wants to have, who wants to be raised and loved and nurtured by this like shell of a, of a human existence, <laughs> this person who's just exhausted no, it's so and true. depleted, like, no, like, you know, we shouldn't be telling mothers and women to be selfless. You know, we want women and mothers to be supported and to live these these fulfilling and, and uh, nurturing lives themselves because then that spills over into their children and their families and their friends and everyone else in their community as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a it just brings you back to that. Uh, you got to be the village, right? And you got to raise your kids in a community and it, it takes a village to truly mm-hmm. do it. And we've lost that as a society, like more than anything, that is what we've lost is knowing your neighbors and helping each other out and being charitable towards those that you care about. Absolutely. 
So I was kind of reviewing a book that I've, I've read in social work school. I've read it a few times because it's just required all the time. Um, Jessica, have you heard of it? It's by Dr. Bruce Perry, and it's called The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. I have not, no. Okay. It's like a required reading in social work school. Um, but uh, So Dr. Bruce Perry, he is a, uh, what is he, a uh, psychiatrist, and he specifically works with traumatized children. And he is really big on um, community, like community and like large uh, families, like, and not just like the nuclear family. Like he actually talks about how like we hold up the nuclear family so much in our society as like what family should be, but that's not enough. Like we really need to have these family structures where you have extended families and communities all coming together to raise children and how actually the ideal ratio of grownups or caregivers to children would be four grownups to every one child. And that's so different from like the ratios that we have in our homes, in our schools, and all of the different places where children are. It's usually more like you'll have one adult and several children. Or in our school districts, you even have like one teacher for a classroom of 20 to 30 students. And that is so against how our entire species has evolved and how children are going to be able to get the support that they need. I, I also want to point out, this is a very white Western thing, because when we look at other cultures that are not white and are not Western, specifically the Indian culture and the Asian culture, it is very normal for grandparents and parents and to have multiple up to four generations living in the same household to essentially like live with both set of grandparents as well as both your parents and your siblings. That is very normal. Um, in India and in Asia. And when we look at that and we look at um, the children, the family structures of those communities, we see kids that are highly educated and highly successful. Um, it's not to say that they don't come from trauma or that there's not other things that come with that kind of um, culture and household, right? There absolutely is. Um, but I don't think anyone's arguing that they lack education or that they lack discipline or that they lack hard work. Um, me personally, going to the college campus that I go to, it's very um, foreign exchange student dominated. So I've made quite a few friends um, with individuals from both those cultures. And the few things that they've shared with me, as far as like their family life and their family structure, it was very academically uh, rigorous, but they also had a lot of support in doing it. They constantly had parents or siblings that were able to help tutor them, that were able to help do homework with them. Um, grandparents that made breakfast or made dinner, siblings who gave them rides to school, um, so on and so forth. Like they had parents who were like the head of the household, but everyone did their piece and everyone knew where their place was. Mm -hmm. So last school semester, I took a class on Native American history and I brought it up so many times because I feel like I learned so much in that class that is directly correlated with why America has so many issues. And um, this t uh, ties into what you just mentioned about um, families that have multiple generations living in one home. Um, it, between the years 1958 and 1967, the American government um, started like this federal program called the Indian Adoption Era. And it was basically where... So, um, whites or, you know, uh, social workers who worked for the government would go around to Native American reservations and basically just like invade everybody's privacy and go into their homes and like 
like they were, it was basically CPS and looking at the conditions in which the children were living in. And from there, they would then take these children out of, you know, the conditions that they were living in, which were, they were extremely poor Um, in the Native American communities. There was not a lot of food, not a lot of resources. So they would take these children and they would put them in foster care systems. And it was propaganda and in magazines and newspapers um, that it was this heroic thing for white, rich families to... Um, adopt Native American kids and it was just this huge thing like like that like the starving children of Africa like that whole thing like white people like go adopt your Native American babies they need love they need a house they need loving parents but the problem with this is that these social workers were going on to Native American reservations and they were st- stealing children from their homes and their reasons were that there were too many people living in the house or um, there there wasn't enough food or they had too many children and these reasons and I can I'm sure that there were some reasons um, like the child was starving or the child was an orphan why they would take that child and put them in the foster care system But there were thousands and thousands of children that were ripped away from their mothers for no real reason. And now we have this generation of Native Americans that are, I don't know the exact age, but they're like probably like our parents age, like in 50s, 60s, that are so fucked up because it's like they grew up with love, like their white adopted parents loved them but they still remember their native American parents and they remember being ripped away from their family when they were like five, six, seven years old. Yeah. It is is crazy. It's good. It's a, it's a different standard of life. And we see that throughout history, how white people tend to do that. We tend to see people that live in a different lifestyle than us, right? It's no less, it's no more, but, but in our eyes, it has more suffering, right? We know that's not to be true with people that are poor, right? Like people love to throw out the word poor as if it's some kind of abuse. Being poor is not abuse. We all know people who have been poor and become amazing people and transcended those traumas and have become the hardest workers that we know. I actually saw something that said, uh, it said, we need, we can't keep getting mad at poor people for having babies when we have rich people having babies and deciding not to be parents. And it's essentially Mm -hmm. saying like we have rich people out here that are hiring full-time nannies and chefs and this, that, and the other so that they can continue to go be individuals while someone else raises their child. And then we're essentially illegalizing abortion because poor people are quote unquote using it as birth control. And that's like not even the case, right? I'd, I'd rather be around seven people who grew up poor than seven people who grew up rich any day, you know, because it, it doesn't negate the quality of the individual that you are just because you came from poverty, just because you came from any trauma, right? It can affect who you are. It can be a piece of who you are, but it does not make you who you are. Yeah. I, I, after hearing like Agnes, what you shared as well, I just have to say, I just love the audacity of whiteness to right go into these <laughs> communities and criticize like their circumstances without acknowledging that the fact that these Native Americans are in these horrific circumstances because of colonization. Yeah. Like you have children and, and every that are time starving because of colonization. Yeah. 
every time we've colonized, that's what it's been. Like I think about the Middle East, I'm like, okay, it's a different way of living. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah, we can sit here and be like, oh, but they're suffering in this way. In the same way that we can look at America and look at, say, look at how we're suffering. You know, like there's going to be suffering no matter how you live. But to look at someone else's lifestyle and say, oh, you're doing it wrong. And so I'm going to come and make you do it this way. is just absurd. Really, it really is. Have either of you gone out of the country before, like to Mexico or anything? Okay, no. so I've, I mean, I've only gone to Mexico twice, and it's like that hardly counts as like leaving or like leaving the country, but like a little bit it does. And both two th- or something huge that I noticed. Um, this was this was primarily the second time I went to Mexico. It was with my ex husband Robbie, and we went to Cancun, but not like we didn't go to Cancun to party. We did not stay in an inclusive resort. We actually like <laughs> purposefully stayed at like a we rented like an apartment like in town, like amongst the locals. And Robbie speaks Spanish, so like we basically like lived amongst the locals for like a week and like talked to the locals and like went and ate at the places where the locals ate. We did not do a lot of touristy stuff. And like when we got on the plane to come back home, both of us were like looking at each other like, what the fuck are we doing? Why are we going back to the United States? Like we're going back home to jobs that are paying us really well. We own a a new home that we had built last year. We have brand new, nice cars. We have all, we have a house full of all this nice shit, you know, (laughs) like, but we're not happy. Like we're so not happy and we have to go back to these jobs to pay for all the stuff that's not making us happy. And we just spent a week in Mexico living in a two, two room, not a two bedroom, a two room apartment in a complex with families living in the same two room apartment in that complex. And these people were so happy. Like people would have their doors open. They're hanging out with their neighbors. There's music, there's cookouts. Like it's a whole community. You walk through the streets, you go to the restaurants. Everyone is just like, there's this, there's this joy by just to be alive that we hadn't seen living here in the United States. And it was like these people by our standards have nothing. They have nothing. And they're so much more happy than we are. It's so funny because they have everything. You know what I mean? Like dead ass. (laughs) They have everything. They have everything. Like capitalism has ruined us. It's ruined us to assume that our worth is so little as a monetary object. You know what I mean? Because truly every single human, like let's get cheesy for a second. Every single human has a born blessing, is a, is a born blessing to this world, has a purpose in this world to share happiness, to share love, to share human connection. And with that comes pain, comes suffering, comes sacrifice as it will, no matter where you are or what animal you are. You know what I mean? Like that is a mm-hmm. part of life. And we've lost human connection we have lost community we have lost kindness we have lost finding what we have in common first now we look at for what we have different and i think that's the biggest thing that capitalism's ruined is we point at someone else and we say oh you're different than me instead of looking at someone else and saying what do we have in common yeah absolutely and I love too how you talked about that, how like we're, we're so disconnected from one another and, you know, kind of going back to Dr. Bruce Perry, like he talks a lot about that and harps on that in the book, like with, with Western civilization in the last hundred years, we have moved, we have all like moved away from each other. We live in our own separate homes. We move hundreds, thousands of miles away from our, our 
our families of origin, we have like completely decimated our support systems. We've basically replaced connection with technology, which is not a good, that's not a substitute, you know, and we're so lonely and we have, we're depressed and we're anxious and it's because we're so disconnected from one another. And I think I'm going to actually hold on one second. I have to like look in the book because there was like this really powerful quote that I think it was in this book that I underlined. Um, and I underlined it because it's kind of like different from what I was taught in my early 20s. There was like this saying that got thrown around a lot in my early 20s, especially by like my friends that were single. And it was like, well, I have to love myself before other people are going to love me. And he actually talks about like how untrue that is. Hold on one second. Mm. I have to like try to find this. I think it's in no, you're good. Yeah. To touch on that before you share, I think, uh, I think I learned to love myself because of the love that others had for me. And and that's exactly it. I used it it. as a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Here we go. I'm actually going to just quote this right here from the book. Um, And this is from The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog by Dr. Bruce Perry. Quote, for years, mental health professionals taught people that they could be psychologically healthy without social support. That, quote, unless you love yourself, no one else will love you, end quote. Women were told that they didn't need men and vice versa. People without, or I mean, and I think like to update that, it could be, you know, women with women or men with when, you know, any gender, that doesn't matter. People without any relationships were believed to be as healthy as those who had many. These ideas contradict the fundamental biology of human species. We are social mammals and could never have survived without deeply interconnected and interdependent human connect- or contact. The truth is you cannot love yourself unless you have been loved and are loved. The capacity to love cannot be built in isolation. End quote. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think that's spot yeah. on. Um, I, when I was going through my whole self-love journey, um, the first thought I had was, how can I have all these people that love me and still hate myself? That's what it was. It was like that, that was the thought, word for word, that went through my head when I was thinking about when I was at my lowest low, was I had two amazing parents who loved me and supported me in my education. I had an amazing family, an amazing sister, a loving brother. I had friends. I had professors that cared about my education as much as I did, and I hated living the life that I lived for other factors, right? But when I really started to focus on, okay, how am I going to love myself? I looked at the people that loved me for a guide. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think it, like, and that that just speaks even more to that. Like, we think that we think that we have to learn to love ourselves before we can let other people love us or we can love back. And it's simply not true when we really, really like look at the big picture and look at our lives and look at the people around us that do love us. Yeah. Yep. I, I, this like last week, when it's come to affirmations, it's like, this is a really easy one, but this is the one that's been in my head is, uh, the answer is always love. And it's like, it's super simple, but I've been just going through it this week and I've had so many just situations that to me just seemed like BS. I was like, why do I have to deal with this right now? One of which was being like a roommate situation, right? And it just like blew up. And I was like, this doesn't like, I don't want to deal with this right now. Like, and my first reaction sometimes is to like be petty back, right? Like, oh, you're going to do that? (laughs) Well, then fine. Like, I'm going to do this. And this whole week, I've just been like cutting that voice out because I'm like, that's not the person I want to be anymore. It's like 
part of me kind of growing up right now is like realizing as much as I'm a confrontational person, I don't want to hurt people. You know, I don't want to hurt people, especially because I'm hurting. I want to end that cycle. I want to nip that in the butt. And the answer is always love. And that's how I do it. No matter what it is, the answer is always love. So in those moments when like I hear that voice coming up like, oh, do something petty back. Instead, I change it to why don't you give it a little bit more love? And how has that changed the situations for you throughout the week? I'm just curious. Like, have you noticed a difference when you respond with love instead of pettiness? To be honest, it's been very difficult. Like, given the uh, current situation, I just, without going into too, too much detail, I feel very disrespected by some of the things that this individual has said. And so it's not a matter of, like, I, I guess I'm not really ready or to be in a place to directly fight it with love in the sense of, mm. like, I'm not continuing to do it. I'm not necessarily continuing doing the loving acts that I once did prior to feeling this way about being disrespected. Cause prior to that, I thought that I was like friends with this individual. And so I did go out of my way quite a bit um, to help them and to assist them and to make it a comfortable living situation. And then after this, you know, I, I, I was having those thoughts, right. Of like, Oh, get back at him or like do this or do that. And instead I was like, no, like that's not the answer and it's not going to make anything better. That's not to say that like I continued to do his dishes or continued to clean up after him, right? I didn't and it's been hard, but I haven't fought it back with hate. You know what I mean? What Mm -hmm. I have done is kind of just sat there quietly and not given it anything or given it any energy. But I also haven't been petty, you know? I haven't vacuumed at 11 p.m. at night or 6 a.m. in the morning or started doing dishes just to you know, be mean or put any energy into the house. I've just kept to myself. I've meditated on it. I've journaled about it. I've gotten the frustration around the immediate situation kind of out of the air. And it's like, now I'm in a place where I honestly, I feel like I'm thinking rationally about it. I'm like, this Mm -hmm. is the situation. This is the issue at hand. And this is likely going to be the solution right without anyone getting hurt without anyone making rash or rushed decisions right um because at the end of the day he's still a human right and he's still i like i i wish the best for every human and if that's true then i need to practice what i preach damn yeah (laughs) <laughs> and I think too, it's important to, to, to kind of mention here as well, because you were saying that you, that you've been using this affirmation of, um, I'm sorry, can you say the affirmation again? Love is always the answer. Love is always the answer. So practicing that affirmation, I think it's also important right now to say that love doesn't mean being a pushover. Love doesn't mean just like being walked on. Love also means boundaries and accountability. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. it sounds like you're doing and it sounds like you're doing a good job of setting those boundaries in place, but you're, and you're holding not just him accountable, but you're, it sounds like I, what I'm hearing is that you're holding yourself accountable too, that I am, I have this um, desire and I have this old program in me that wants to respond in the same old ways I always have of being petty, but I'm going to hold myself accountable to grow, use this opportunity to grow and to handle the situation in a better way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, and that's kind of come from a place, this has kind of gone off topic from the <laughs> original discussion of this podcast, <laughs> but it's, a it's come of a place of, I want to make sure in my life and in my community that I make space for the ones that I care about 
in every way that I make space for them to be their best selves but also make space for them to be human you know and to show them grace in those moments because that's what I would want done unto me absolutely well jumping back actually because I had a few more questions about the book you were reading too I did want to circle back to that because we started off the episode talking about how there's been a rise in infant side and abortions throughout history I'm curious, does the author speak about why that is? Does he have any um, research, any facts, or even any theories that back up or, or give a, or talk about why, the reason why that's happening? Um, I do remember him mentioning it in a portion of the book, but I don't remember what it was, to be honest. Um, okay. I wish I, yeah, I wish I would have, if I had that question prior, I would have been able to, I would have done a little bit more digging onto that. Um, I could try and find something now, but it might take a second. Uh, oh, that's fine. So it's yeah, kind of it literally like, just yeah, everyone <laughs> go read the book. <laughs> no, it literally just popped into my head as you were talking about it. And I just kind of like, you know, decided to, to shelve it for the moment, but I wanted to circle back. So that's all right. If you didn't have it as well, I was just curious. Yeah, no worries. Um, we can, we can come up with our own theories on it, of course, but, uh, I think. Yeah. Do, do you have a theory on it or Agnes, do you have any theories on that too? I think, like, I'm trying to, like, really break it down in my head, the rise of abortions and infanticide. I I don't know if it's the access to it, like, the access to safe abortions, if that's something that's made it more viable for women to get it done. Or if it's, there's just more infanticide happening because we're at a larger population, which I don't oh, think it would be yeah. that. Just, I, the only, I, you know, like I, the only reason I think it wouldn't be that is because this dude is a scientist, and if he's a scientist, it means that he knows to not base his statistics off population. You do it in a ratio sense, right? Whereas, right. like that was the population then. This is the population now. This is the percentage that of abortions were happening back then, versus the percentage now. Um, so it doesn't seem right to me that he would make a statement that infanticide was on the rise, based mm-hmm. on a rising population, without stating so. Yeah. Now, is that like infanticide is on the rise? Like, like if we're looking at right now, like in like in the twenty, the twenty tens on, let's say the new millennium or whatever. Mm-hmm. If we're looking at this time in history compared, is he comparing the rise like in the last few hundred years or more like thousands mm-hmm. of years? Like this is over yeah, thousands of years it. it's been rising. Yeah, he's comparing it to the overall throughout all of history. Throughout all of history, from Homo sapiens, yeah, from when we were cavemen, like, in a cave to now. (laughs) Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it is. He he goes a lot into, also, like, times of which humans almost went extinct and how, like, women are the only reason that humans are still around, basically. Like, before farming, like, before we had cattle, when we were hunters and gatherers and men left for days at a time to go hunt, right? And women stayed behind in the caves and made fire and fed kids. The women were the ones that actually had more skill set than the men. They were the ones that were the educated ones. They knew how to communicate. They knew how to make fire. They knew how to use tools. They knew how to cut and prepare meat. They knew how to preserve meat. They knew how to bury it into the ground, right? Preserve it with salt to create jerky. The men didn't do any of that. They didn't gut the animals. They didn't clean the animals. The women did that, right? And they they taught it onto their children. Um, But also in doing so, the survival rate was much less. We didn't live as long, right? So Mm -hmm. women today, we have 
15, 20 years to have kids one year after the other, right? You carry it for nine months, you get pregnant again, carry it for nine months, so on and on. Well, if you're a woman and you're only living to 27, how many kids can you realistically have, right? With them dying and famine and hunger and having to provide for them. So it's almost as if we came from a time period where like abortion probably wasn't even on the radar unless it meant the survival of your other offspring because they just died. Right. You know? Yeah, because I think now I, we're in a society. Go ahead. I don't know. I don't know where I've heard this statistic from, but I, I know I've heard it. And maybe it's just like common. But that, you know, when you look back over hundreds, thousands of years, I mean, a, a woman would have several children throughout her life. But statistically, only about half of them would actually like live to be a few years old. Most children died, you know, in infancy or within the first few years of life. That was just common. Absolutely. Right. Whereas like now we're in a day and age where we have modern medicine and we give birth in hospitals in very clean, sterile environments. Um, and so their survival, like as you know, I stated in that quote, we can make preemies survive, you know, only being in the womb for a handful of months. That's crazy. That's crazy mm -hmm. to think that that's yeah. how far we've come. Right. And so that's why that's right there. That reason alone, modern medicine is where I would attribute with the knowledge that I have to the rise mm -hmm. in abortions and infanticide is the availability of it and also the the rise in educated women the fact that women have a right to an education we have the right to birth control and then we have the right to pick our own sexual partners mm -hmm. i feel like another reason why and i i this definitely correlates with what you said about like the rise of infanticide um is just the concept of like women having more rights and us realizing that this is a choice for us and why Roe v. Wade is so important for women is because it's such a, a public statement that proves that even though it doesn't directly say in our constitution that this is something that we have a right to, but this is like a move that the government is taking where we're able to find like answers within the constitution to prove that women are throughout history are able to gain more and more rights. And um, so one of, one of the attorneys for um, Jane Roe and the Roe v. Wade uh, case in the 1970s was Sarah Weddington. And she actually got an abortion as well. So she was in law school when she found out that she was pregnant with her fiance. And this is in Texas. And this is so funny because like, I, so I'm reading this book right now. I actually just picked it up from the library yesterday. It's called Roe v. Wade, Abortion in the Supreme Court by Deborah Romaine. And it's just this little thin, like very basic book just talking about different Supreme Court cases. And um, in, in this book, it's, sh it's sharing the stories of how this case came to be and the attorneys and what their arguments were. And they're from Texas. I thought that was so funny because we, you know, a few months ago we had such like a huge issue with Texas, you know, wanting to take away women's rights. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is where this issue was rooted from because a lot of women in Texas could not get abortions in America around the time in like the 1970s or I'm sure in other times as well. 
in history, but they would just drive down to Mexico and get abortions in Mexico. And there were tons of like facilities and doctor's offices in Mexico that were great. Like think about how now a lot of people go to Mexico to get surgeries and everything. Yeah, it was the same way with, with abortions. And Sarah Weddington, one of the attorneys for Jane Roe, she was in law school when she got her abortion. And she she had a fiancé, and her and her fiancé got in the car on a weekend, drove down to Mexico, and she got her abortion and was back in school on Monday. And you think about, like, oh, she's such a horrible person for doing that. But also, like, her... And the biological father of this fetus made a joint decision because it was a time in history where she knew her worth. And she knew that she had so much going for her in the sense that she was in law school and she was going to be such a successful woman. And she knew that by having a child she would not have gotten that and who knows maybe if she did have the child her life would have gone in a different direction and she could have been just as happy we can what if it all day yeah we can sit there and say what if she had a miscarriage though exactly like you we have no idea what her future would have been but that's the reason why this case went through is because women have the right to make that choice of what their what the path of their life is going to go they can be happy having 10 children they can be happy having 10 abortions and that is nobody's right to make except for that woman and i think that that reading this book right here and even seeing that the women that were fighting for jane roe who was a waitress and that by the way that's not her real name but um she was a waitress and um she already had one baby she didn't know when she got pregnant she didn't know who the father was and she was making no money and she grew up poor she didn't even graduate high school and she found out that she was pregnant and she's like i i can't have this child but for other women um i know sarah weddington and i can't remember the other attorney's name i know that her last name was coffee i thought that was really funny um and the fact that sarah weddington one of the attorneys is someone who had an abortion and still stood up for jane roe and said i'll fight for you yeah i think that is so powerful and it speaks so much for the evolution of women's rights in america Well, and I think, too, as Jessica has kind of painted this picture for us by talking about infanticide in the like, you know, throughout the entire existence of humans. But, you know, women have always made that choice. It's not even like Roe v. Wade itself is like saying women get to have a choice or not. Like, regardless of what laws exist ever, women have always had a choice. Women are will always have a choice. We always will. It's when laws get in our way of making the choice that we have to make for the survival of ourselves and our children and our communities and the evolution of the species. Yeah. And and that's on facts. This is the way I put it. Margaret, do you consider yourself a murderer? No. Okay. If someone was going to hurt your son, would you hurt them? Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to, but if it came down to that person and my son, yeah. I would. Exactly. So I agree. I agree that you are not a murderer. And I also agree that you could murder someone 
if they came in between you and your child. And mm -hmm. I make that distinction because, again, we have always made the choice when it's come to our children, right? And we will always make that choice when it comes to our children. We've always made that choice when it's come to ourselves. Every human has, whether you're a man or a woman, when it comes to a matter of self-defense or your life over someone else's life, chances are you're going to pick your own life. Mm -hmm. And if it comes down to me and safely aborting a child, and sorry, if it comes down to me, you know, having the potential to have an unsafe pregnancy or the potential to have a child that would be um, unable to have a quality life or it came down to me not having a quality life, having that child, then I'm going to make that decision, whether it's legal or not, whether the government gives me the choice or not, I'm going to make the choice. Right. Do you want to also speak a little bit about women who become pregnant and find out that the child that's going to be born has some severe handicaps or, or some yeah. diseases or, or something that's going to prevent this child from having a healthy and joyful and dignified life. Um, did you want to speak a little bit Absolutely. about that? Yeah. yeah just, uh, I, I had this statement that I was sharing with Margaret and Agnes prior to coming onto this episode of, I don't believe that all life has value just because it is life. Um, and in saying that, what I am saying is there's a lot of children that are brought into this world with the knowledge that they are going to be severely mentally handicapped to the point where they are not going to be verbal. They are never going to communicate. They will never walk. They will never feed themselves. They will never be able to give themselves a bath. They will never be able to defecate by themselves. They will always, every single day and every second of their existence, be dependent on another human being for their care and for their life and for their experience. And that to me is not value in life. That to me is not quality of life. Given I will never understand an individual such as one that is mentally handicapped's human experience because I only have my human experience to compare it to, right? So I'm essentially valuing my human experience over theirs because I have mental capacity. And that's the argument of like, is that fair to do? To some people it wouldn't. To some people, especially religious people that believe everyone is equal in the eyes of God, they would say that that's unfair of me to uh, put down someone else's human experience simply because I have a mental capacity to understand my own experience. And that's their right, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, that is. Um, but for me, um, I've worked with special needs kids, and I've loved and adored special needs kids. Mm -hmm. Nothing against uh, special needs kids at all. But I've seen the work that those parents have to go through and the reality that they have to accept that they will die leaving a child behind who will rely on a government system likely to take care of them till the end of their life, right? Because their child will not be able to be an independent human capable of taking care of themselves. And if it doesn't fall on the government and the system, it falls on the siblings, which is almost worse. These siblings grow up, you know, with a handicapped uh, sibling and they're essentially growing up knowing they're going to be taking care of that sibling for the rest of their life. Um, whether they have a choice in it or not, you know, and that to me is not something that I would do. It's not something I would want for myself. It's not something that I would wish on any other individual. And so as much as, you know, people want to sit here and say I'm pro-life, I sit here and I make the statement that I'm pro-death. I think as a society, we need to give more people safe access to terminating their own lives in a proper legal and safe way as well as having a serious discussion about the quality of human life that we're bringing into the world. Mm, yeah. 
I think that's such a controversial thing. All like everything you just talked about too, like around like deciding is this what is this life worth bringing forth, you know, or even like is life worth ending, you know, for someone that's already alive and and is not having, you know, uh, is really really sick, you know, and and not having a good quality of yeah. life. These are such such controversial topics, and I think that they're they're ones that like when I listen to different people talk about it and who are very passionate about it and, and I, don't, I don't even want to say on both sides of the aisle because I don't even think it's like two sides. I think there's so many different conversations going on. Like I can understand yeah. all the different things and it's challenging because it's like I don't think there's like a clear right or wrong thing. Um, you know, cause as you said, like for you personally, you know, it wouldn't be worth it to be able to, to be in this life and to have, you know, to not be able to speak, to not be able to go to the bathroom by yourself, to not be able to clean yourself, to eat, to feed yourself. That's not something you would want. And I'm sure also there's families out there that are going through that together that are somehow that for some reason they see there's value. They can look past all that and they're yeah. still able to like hold on to there's some value there. But I think that also goes into um, kind of like looking at our society and our culture and looking at what we deem as valuable because we all kind of have like a different metric system where it becomes problematic is when we look at how we have these social safety nets set up, right? So we deem certain people more uh, more worthy of having food, more worthy of having health insurance, more worthy of having all of these things. And that's where it becomes problematic because it's like, you know, you have like, yeah, systems that basically say, well, if you have this disability, we'll take care of it. But if you have this disability, eh, figure it out. Like you can make yeah. it work. Right. So then I think that that really, that's really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I put an interesting thought in my head for another time, but <laughs> like, <laughs> I do like that. Um, I was like, wow, I just like started, I like open, it's like when you open the treasure chest and like you see the light and I like, I had to close it real quick. So I was like, oh, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> no, I mean, um, I think this is, I think this is all related. Like, uh, obviously this is like a part two to our Roe v. Wade episode from last week. But like when you're talking about Roe v. Wade, like we're talking about life and death. There's so much that goes into this. Yeah. And it's a yeah. very, like for people, this is a very religious thing. For other people, it's a very philosophical thing. It's also just like a matter of survival, you know? And it's also yeah. like, this gets into politics and culture and uh, social work stuff and psychology, like literally everything intersects here. And I think that's why it's such a complex topic. Yeah, funny enough, um, I was raised by very uh, Catholic conservative parents. Uh, my dad is someone who's been very outspoken against abortion, believes that it's a sin, believes that you shouldn't do it, you're a murderer, you're killing a baby, all that and the other. But it's funny because uh, my dad is also someone who openly states that if something were to ever happen to him where he is hooked up to a machine, where he gets severely brain damaged, if he gets some kind of terminal uh some kind of terminal diagnosis like Parkinson's or MS or something, uh, dementia, right? Something that's just excruciating for a family to watch and to go through that he wants to be taken out into the middle of a forest and left with nothing but a shotgun. My, I mean, my dad has said this to every, like, like we've had this conversation so many times. He's like, never, ever watch me hooked up to a tube and ventilated my life away. Like, don't make mm -hmm. me do that. I don't want that to myself. And so my mom was telling me at brunch the other day how uh, 
her and my sister like had this really great conversation with him that was super civil about how it kind of directly applied to abortion and how it wasn't really fair for him to sit here and hold women as essentially murderers because they didn't value quote-unquote life but that he was because he had he feels the same way about suicide that you're essentially going to hell if you commit suicide because you don't value a life that was given by god and so they, they threw his logic back at him and they said if that's what you believe then practice what you preach and if something happens we're going to keep you on that ventilator how do you feel about that and of course he got super defensive and he's like no i don't want that i don't want that and they go so can't you sympathize with a woman not wanting that for herself and he just like he had to really think about that and they said that they they uh they actually they got him to kind of back down on that and he said that he was going to do some deeper thinking into his viewpoints on that and so i thought that was really cool and a good way to think about it wow good for i know we're all kind of shocked by that yeah i know like my dad (laughs) is not an individual who does that very often so (laughs) Yeah. And I don't, well, actually, I don't know what what your parents' stance is on this, but I also see this very common in religious communities because I witnessed it myself growing up Catholic and seeing other adults talking about the pro-life movement. But then on the other side, they would talk about how they are pro-death penalty. So, you know, they're totally fine, which again, it's like when you look and again, this is like kind of coming from like social work school. And when you look at these statistics of you have children that are born, you know, you have a, a like a single mother as an example. Like, let, let, I'm just going to give kind of a hypothetical, but I think that this hypothetical is played out so often in real life. You have the hypothetical um, example of like the single mother in poverty who has children. She gets pregnant. She's not able to get access to health care. This child's born into poverty, you know, is not raised in a healthy environment. Uh, the child does not have a mother present or a father present, you know, and ends up, you know, getting uh, kicked out of school or getting into a lot of trouble. They end up on the streets. They get into drugs. They get into crime. They end up in prison, you know, and that's if they're lucky. You know, that's if they didn't end up like really falling in with the wrong crowd and they end up murdering someone or getting murdered themselves, you know, and then they find themselves put away for the rest of their lives eventually or they murder someone and then they're put on death row and they're killed anyway. And it's like, you know, should the like what if the mother had had access to an abortion, you know? And so yeah. it just boggles my mind yeah. when you have religious people that are like, well, this mother has to bring the child forth. But then if that child gets in with the wrong crowd and does something wrong, well, now that person deserves to be put to death. And so I'm going to advocate for that. But then yeah, they call themselves exactly. pro-life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone calling themselves pro-life is pro-life. I think we've nipped that argument <laughs> but real quick. Oh, but yeah. Like, like for real. Oh, yeah. No, but like, you know, yeah, it's just, it's shocking that they even use that as their mantra and, and they only use that as their mantra because the main mantra in the Rovers Wade was pro-choice, right? It was give women the right. choice. And so they said, oh, we're not pro-choice, we're pro-life. And it's like, <laughs> wow, that's so stupid and unapplicable considering all the other beliefs you guys have and all the other torturous things the Catholic Church has done. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's actually a term that I did see a few times. I think this was on this was on TikTok, but instead of uh, referring to people that they like pro-life people, instead of referring to them as that, it's forced birthers. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I oh, love really? that one. Oh, I was I gonna. Was what you're gonna say. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was gonna say um, anti-choice, which is definitely like a smart, like a better version than saying pro-life. But I like forced birthers better. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just getting so high because I thought that's what you were gonna say. <laughs> but I saw that online. It said we need to stop calling them pro-lifers and start calling them forced birthers because that's what they are. And I was like, that's so true. They're not pro-life. They're forced birth. Yeah. Yeah, or like there's the other one. You, I'm sure you've seen this. This is really common on Facebook, but like pro fetus, and then once you're once you're born, then fuck you. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna start so. calling them forced birthers now, though. So if anyone wants to join <laughs> me in that movement, otherwise I'll be a solo roller. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> Our, well, is there anything else that we want to speak on um, or speak about on this topic before wrapping it up for the night? No, I feel like I got out. I'm good. So, okay. <laughs> okay, so Jessica, you came on our podcast way back when we were like baby podcasters. I mean, we're still kind of baby podcasters, but we were like, like we were fetuses back then. <laughs> and now we're at least toddlers in the podcast world. So we actually have some questions that we ask our guests and I didn't give you the main one like in advance. So we can skip that one if you want, but we have some fun questions now that we ask our guests. You want to do them? Um, yes. Jessica, if you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Ooh, the ability to instantly fall asleep and like wake up, like control, like the amount of time, like, you know what I mean? Like have complete control over it. Never have like <gasps> that to me would be like the most amazing superpower ever. Right? Right? Oh my God. You're the first person that's <laughs> ever said that. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. Because you have to be careful. Like you can't, like if you, if you're like stupid with these kind of questions and you say like, oh, I want to be able to fly. Well, what if you can only fly me? at like 250 <laughs> miles an hour? You know what I mean? Yeah, like you're gonna get yeah. sick. You're gonna get wind la like whiplash from the wind. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> laughing at me right now. I'm just saying. What if like what if you wish to be invisible, but like you don't specify? If you're invisible, do you want like your body mass to still be there? Like for instance, like you're invisible, but if I touch you, I know something's here. Or are you invisible where like nothing's there? Because if nothing's there, you're gonna fall through the floor, right? But if your mass <laughs> is still there, that's gonna be fucking weird. I'm just saying, you really got to think about these things. <laughs> oh, my God. Jessica, I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, too. All right. So the next one, hopefully, is not going to be so analytical. <laughs> what is your, what's your favorite comfort food? <laughs> That's a tough one. Man, you can I'm go with top like three. My mom's like, okay, top three, Greek euros. Are just like Ooh. so good to me, yeah. Um, like just like uh, ramen is probably one, and pizza, always pizza, and ice oh, cream. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Just four. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a retired fat person. Like, do they even understand? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of ice cream? Oh, uh, like coffee ice cream first, then pistachio. Have you tried the boba coffee ice yes. cream at Trader Joe's? So good. Uh, wait, or, wait, yeah, Trader what? <gasps> what? Oh, yeah. Okay, Trader Joe's has a vegan coffee flavored boba. And it's actually good. Like Boba ice cream. It's so good. It's fucking amazing. Like there's boba in it, guys. Yes. And oh it's vegan. Oh my God. And it's vegan. Okay, it's I have to, I have have to have, have this. Yeah. They have cookie butter ice cream too, which is like might be top 
like number one because Trader Joe's cookie butter is basically like crack. It is. Oh, crack. it is. It's crack butter. <laughs> it's called Trader Joe's cookie. It's called Trader Joe's cookie butter, and it's essentially like like it's usually the texture of peanut butter, but think like graham cracker, like graham cracker flavored peanut butter, and it's called cookie butter, and it's so so good. But they have an ice cream in it. Like they have an ice cream that has cookie butter swirl in it, and it's like uh, it's not vegan. <laughs> <laughs> Specify. just so they know oh my <laughs> fully God. dairy I, oh my gosh i'm gonna have to find a trader joe's i'm so pissed because like where we're living right now we're living in this like super bougie area like if we didn't live in a fifth wheel we could not afford to live here so we're in this super bougie area they are too bougie i swear for trader joe's and sprouts all we have is whole foods <laughs> so oh, no. i literally have to drive half an hour to find a trader joe's it's so stupid oh. Yeah, well, but I'm going to go find stock it. Stock up on some ice cream. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> All right, next one. Jessica, what brings you the most joy in your life right now? Ooh, the people that love me, like my community. That's like, that's yeah. just, that's what makes me smile in the morning is like waking up and knowing that I have the life that I have with the people that I have it with. And Gucci. Oh, God, yeah. Jesus. Like, are you kidding me? Obsessed. <laughs> Gucci is. Oh, Gucci's my dog, guys. He's amazing. He's like my whole world, as most of our four-legged companions are to us. But he's just the cuddliest little chihuahua, and he nuzzles his head at me every morning. And he coos, which is like my favorite part. He does these like little grunts, and they're so oh. cute. I want to impersonate them for your guys' sake, but just trust me. <laughs> I trust you. Oh, they're so funny. <laughs> All right. Now, the last one we normally don't. Normally, I give it out in advance, but I wasn't thinking. Um, I will say the question. If you want to just sort of try to improv it, go for it. If not, that's totally cool. But our last question cool. is, what are three songs that elicit the strongest emotions for you? Is that too well, much? That's a good one. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, it's like probably like not the answer that you would think it is though. There's just like really sad songs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one well, what is, are they? Uh, one is "Skin" by Rascal Flatts, and it's about this girl who <sighs> gets cancer. And yeah, have you heard the song? It's sad, <sighs> and it's basically about yeah. like this boy asking her to prom, and then he shaves his head, and then like she's talking about her first dance, and then she like ends up passing away, and it says Sarah Beth is scared to death. And it's just like, it's a sad song. <laughs> it gets me, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, wow. And then uh, another one, top three, that's tough, improv. Um, oh, like I did this at karaoke, that's why I'm saying it. And it's a funny one. It's Redneck Woman by Gretchen Wilson. And that's just because I was raised on that song. Like, I just have so many memories of me, my mom, and my sister alone in the car, like, belting that song at the top <gasps> of our Wait. head. Like, I'll keep my I'm Christmas lights <laughs> on the front porch all year long. Got a baby on my hip. Like, uh, great Isn't song. Isn't that the just one that's so like, and I'm a redneck woman. Redneck ain't woman. no high class broad. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I remember that Love song. Love that song. Such a good song. Um, and then, oh, this is the other one. You Raise Me Up by uh, Josh Groban. You uh, raise me up. So you guys know that one. I know it's Catholic. That's why you'd be like, oh, it's going to be traumatizing. But actually, like that song to me 
helped me through so many times because it's not religious to me like that to me is me speaking to myself and speaking to like my old self of like where I've come from and essentially saying like you're strong enough to walk on mountains you're strong enough to weather the storm like you're gonna get through this because you're capable of so much because look at where you've come from you know yeah yeah those are my three awesome wow thanks for winging that I could not have I could not have just like pulled that out of my hat so quickly (laughs) I had to think hard I was like Apple music list in my head (laughs) thanks for having me on though guys I really do I had a great time yeah thanks for coming back on oh we have to do our gratitude prompt oh yeah yeah. sorry my bad gratitude prompt that's the last thing I know it's it's like become torture for us now like the whole idea of our podcast is like gratitude and now we're like oh I don't want to think about it (laughs) Well, because we get on our Mark. podcast and we bitch about all these things and talk about how horrible the world is. And then we're like, all right, but let's at least just try to be positive about one thing today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I get that. And then like Sean, every once in a while, is like, are you guys going to have an episode that's like not depressing? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there should be an episode on like um, like self-help or like tips on like getting out of the rut like those type of episodes i don't know just ideas we would but the entire episode would be talking about being in the rut and the last five minutes we'd be like okay now we got to talk about actually getting out (laughs) that's fair it is tough (laughs) okay so you gotta like you gotta like write notes like steps that you've taken to get out of the rut and then you go i don't know i don't know guys i'm not a podcaster (laughs) audience let us know your thoughts (laughs) (laughs) all right margaret fess up what are you grateful for okay what am i grateful for today um (laughs) trying to think i was off work today that is something good because i've been working so 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 much lately and i have a new job because i'm a bartender i would have never thought i'd be a bartender but that's what i'm doing so my body is amazing at it guys you don't know you haven't seen me (laughs) I mean, you can come make drinks for us anytime. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a baby bartender. But anyway, um, I am not used to the schedule of like getting to bed at three or four in the morning um, and waking up at like 11 and going to work and being on my feet and squatting and doing all this physical stuff. So my body is like kind of torn up right now. So I'm very, very grateful that yesterday and today I was off work and I could like attempt to rest and recover before I go back tomorrow. So that's what I'm grateful for. That's awesome. Your turn, Agnes, fess up. Uh, <laughs> you want me to go? Yeah, you go first. You go first. <laughs> Agnes is struggling with what she's grateful for today. No, I only know this because at jiu-jitsu, we do this too at practice after class. Um, our professor has us all kneel on the mat to bow out, and then we go in a circle and we say what we're grateful for that day. And yesterday at jiu-jitsu practice, I said I was grateful for the community that that gym has brought me. Um, jiu-jitsu was something that I started in October, um, so it's only been about, I guess, over six months, but it hasn't seemed that long. Um, it totally took me out of my comfort zone. Like I was around people and doing something very intimate with men and it was very challenging at first and very anxiety riddling. But now like I like Mondays, Wednesdays, like I get off work. I'm like, Oh, got to go to practice. Like hurry up, change, like grab your stuff, put it in the car, 
because everyone in that gym is like my family now. Like I can't imagine not seeing them at some point in my week because I just show up and they're like, hey, Jessica, like, how are you doing? Like, how's work? Like, how was your day? And I ask them the same things. And it's like, man, when when people go from acquaintances to friends to family and now they're suddenly like adding value into your life and you have built a human connection, that is what I'm grateful for. That is what I wake up every day and I like I I crave and when I get it I just feel so fulfilled is when my community and the people that I love feed into me and I'm able to feed into them that's beautiful all right Agnes your turn (laughs) today I'm grateful for um the gym because okay Jessica and I <laughs> we re- we both live in Arizona and we both recently switched our memberships from LA Fitness fuck you LA Fitness <laughs> to um Mountainside Fitness which is like an Arizona Phoenix area based gym and so far we're loving it like I love going to Mountainside it's like slightly more expensive but like it's a long time coming like, we've both been into, like, fitness for a really long time now, so it's definitely a little bit more, like, an investment, but it's definitely worth it. Um, but when I went to LA Fitness, I always felt, like, really insecure about, like, about, like, going to – this is, sounds so stupid, but, like, going to the gym in the morning before work and then, like – getting ready for work at the gym and then like going to work from there because at LA fitness is just like a different crowd. Like there's just a bunch of guys like, and I have to like dress nice for work. So I don't want to like walk through the gym, like in heels and everyone just, like last time I did that, I just got like stared at and I felt like so uncomfortable. Um, but the gym that I go to, like there's just a group of girls that we all go to the gym at the same time like every single day so we all just show up I don't know any of these girls names but we all just like know each other and we're all just in the locker room like getting ready for work at the same time and something about that is just like so comforting and just to be able to like have that routine and like have that time to like finish my workout and like know that I've taken that time out of my day to care for my body and build my body in such a positive way and then be able to like shower at the gym and like go in the sauna or like the wet sauna and then like do my makeup with like all these other girls around me we're all doing our makeup and then dress up and look pretty and then go to work and yeah something about that is just so comforting so that's what I'm grateful for today I love that yeah mountainside is awesome I hear community exactly community it's a yeah, I think no, that's the common, like that's the common theme that you just said. Yeah, it's like going somewhere where you have a sense of community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's about $10 more a month, but man, this gym, like, it's so clean, and it's, a whole, like she said, it's a whole different crowd. Like, you can just tell, like, these people mean business. They're not, it's not, like, teenage boys going to the gym to, like, lift for their ego or, like, to look at girls, which, like, it kind of felt like at L.A. Like, if you're a girl and you walked into L.A., like, you knew that everyone in there was staring at you, and you just kind of had to deal with it. But Mountainside, like, I'm not going to lie, every single girl working out in Mountainside is, like, so ripped and so lean that, like, it inspires me every day that I go in there because I can't wait to get to that point. But even the guys in there, like, I literally, like, sometimes we just run into people because they're actually trying so hard to not look at you. Like, it, it feels more respectful, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not the only one. But even, like, yeah, it's a super nice sauna and they have massage chairs, which Agnes's location is getting soon. 
and towel service free towel service oh yeah. such a plus like i don't know if you're ever on the stair stairmaster or the treadmill doing cardio and the sweat stops dripping down your eyebrow and you know what i mean like you don't want to look like you're sweating but you're sweating towel service clutch so clutch We've done so many like free <laughs> promos in this episode <laughs> i know right i was it's like true. damn we need we need uh your mountainside gym to sponsor us trader joe's like man look at us yeah. <laughs> freaking the ability to control your sleep just kidding <laughs> <laughs> business idea right there you go just come create an app i don't know there's gotta be an app right <laughs> different minds <laughs> <laughs> I could have said it. You said create app. I said create a drug. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that too, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on here. For anyone listening, if you loved this episode and you love listening to Jessica, because I mean, she's just so well-spoken and we love having her on here. Go all the way back to episode nine. We talked all about microdosing mushrooms. And you can check out that episode, too. Thanks for having me, guys. Anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciated it. Have a great time always on your podcast. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to their Patreon as well. They just started it, and it's been doing great. Um, So they have a lot of different content up there that you guys would also love and enjoy. Thanks for mentioning that, because we suck at saying it. (laughs) I got you. I got you. I was like, oh, yeah. We love that. We believe in the power of taking even one minute a day to breathe and find gratitude in the little things. Wherever you are, if you are able, close your eyes, take a deep breath in and out, and reflect on something that you are grateful for today. We are so honored that you could join us in this discussion today, and we hope you have a beautiful week. If you enjoyed today's Unrefined Woman podcast episode, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share. To check out other episodes, please visit our website at unrefinedwoman.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. To stay in the loop and receive access to additional content, please follow us on TikTok, username unrefinedwoman, and on Instagram at unrefinedwomanpodcasts. Special thanks to Walter Birdsong for the album cover, Margaret Rainey for our podcast music, Andrew Cioni for our gratitude prompt music, and Sean Butcher for editing and production. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. That's why, that's why, we, that's why we have Sean, so he can edit out these parts. Shout out, I know, Sean. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Is that? Nope, that's not it.
oh my god agnes we really have to clean out our google drive (laughs) (laughs) i can't find anything in here this is so bad um let me see if this is it do 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 here we go okay all right we're ready for fun questions we'll just start talking we'll just whatever have it organically go Okay. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I just talked, so now it's your turn. Okay, okay, okay. I'll take it. Okay, edit, Sean, please edit that weird pause. Okay. Okay. Okay, I guess that's good enough. There we go. <laughs> yeah. 